This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Buy the Book. I'm Lee Chui Lin, joined as always by my fellow enjoyer of books in all their forms, Shamila Ganesan. Hello. And today we are joined by our fellow BFMer, Lim Suen, uh, because it is our book club this month and we are reviewing or rather discussing Daughter of the Moon Goddess by Tan Su Lin or Su Lin Tan. Um, and Suen, thank you so much for joining us for this. Happy to be here. Okay, so um, first things first, let's go with the person who actually recommended this book. Usually it's our guest, but this time it's Sharmila. Yes, and um, I will be very shallow with this one. I recommended it because I saw the book cover on Tino Cunha's <laughs> Instagram page and the book cover was so beautiful. Um, and then the description of it um, really caught my eye because um, off late, I've actually been enjoying fantasy set in other cultures quite a bit. Um, and this one draws a lot from Chinese mythology, particularly the stories of the moon goddess and um, and and transposes that into the YA fantasy setting. And, and, and I like both very much. So um, I thought this would be a fun one to talk about. So Anne, did you like it? Yes, I want to say that I, I did enjoy it um, throughout throughout the book. And at, at the end, I, did, I, I just found it really refreshing to read something inspired by Chinese mythology. I think I've been on a similar role as Sharmila. It's just so nice to read something that is unfortunately not Western or European fantasy because as much as I think there's been so much of that right and it's just nice to see something that's that feels a bit more familiar when it comes to something like this. Yeah the idea of the lady in the moon right is mm -hmm. something that a lot of mm. us grew up with um, so it's a lot to do actually a lot of the story is encapsulated in the title so mm -hmm. again it's called Daughter of the Moon Goddess and it basically focuses on Singyin who is the daughter of the moon goddess and who finds herself um, exiled from her home and wanting to essentially work towards freeing her mother Chang'e the Chinese moon goddess who has been exiled there instead and so it's this tale of longing in many ways for family and for home, but it's also one of adventure because her path towards doing this is basically that of an orphan, right, who is completely tossed to the winds in this celestial kingdom and who has to somehow find her way from a position of no power to gain her mother's freedom. And the book is very much the story of that. Mm. Yes. And, and as much as, you know, I called it YA, I think sometimes that might unfairly diminish it in a certain way because it's actually quite a um, sprawling book that, that takes place over a course of years and, um, you know, moves different locations. It brings up various groups of celestials and immortals. And there's a lot of dense mythology that underpins um, every aspect of this book. And I think that's what I liked a lot about it. I also really enjoyed the fact that, um, you know, so and you mentioned how it's refreshing to move away from the European Western idea of fantasy. Um, I think this book really leans into all the possibilities that you can get from that, right? Whether it's the way that places are described or the constant descriptions of food, which I loved. Um, reading this book made me hungry, always a plus with fantasy books. But even just the way people speak, um, it, it doesn't sound like the cadence or the words that they use is Western informed. It almost feels like like it's translated from Mandarin. Um, and, and I like that. There's something quite interesting about being in a world that feels refreshing at every turn of the page. Hmm. I think that's something that um, I realised quite early on, that the tone of the book, the, the language that it, they use is very similar to what you would hear 
in a period drama, in a period Chinese drama. And I think that was like, oh, this is, it's almost like flashback to when I used to follow these shows. And it's just very, it's um, it's very nice to, to read that. At points, I thought it did get a bit too flowery, like felt like a bit too much. Things like, I remember reading like tears scattering like rain. That's <laughs> was mm. quite a, it, it's a depiction that feels a bit like over the top. But overall, I think that's what also makes it, unique because it's not like other it's not like many other fantasy books um i wanted to know if either of you recall this comic series that or rather um this bunch of comic books that used to come out that basically did things like uh, journey to the west and whatever but in comic form do you remember i think it's a taiwanese artist i've been trying to look it up for ages do you remember reading it at all do either of you remember no, reading I it don't. Ah, so it's in english or at least it was translated into english and the the drawings were rather i mean very rudimentary and and fun to look at but it was my first introduction to the great epics of chinese mm. uh, mythology and chinese literature and reading this book reminded me of that in the sense that okay it's not it's not comics but in the sense that it's got that same level of accessibility where you're reading it and it's fun and it's an easy way for you to absorb things like not just the moon goddess uh, but the various other forms of immortals that populate the story, uh, the dragons and the mythology surrounding them. And I just really enjoyed that particular throwback to, I suppose, a more accessible introductory level of, hey, you know, you might not have heard or you might be familiar already with these sorts of stories. Here's a little bit more of that world. Here's an extension of that. I think that the descriptiveness was, at least for me, fun. I totally Mm -hmm. get what you're saying. I think that there were points where I was like, wait, how are you feeling now? Because we spent a, we spent a paragraph, um, you know, but I enjoyed the the feeling. I think that Chinese or that period drama thing mm-hmm. came through particularly in, very important for fantasy books, the description of food, yes, but also the clothing and everybody's yes. appearance. Um, because I really got a sense that I could, I could see them. It felt like I was watching scenes play out. Mm. Oh, totally. Um, and in fact, I, I felt very compelled to then go look up fan art and, and also official um, um, paintings that the author herself has released on her Instagram and so on. And, and it's great, right? Because it's, it's really nice to have visuals of the people you're reading about and not, not just how they might look, but how they might dress. And um, there's a lot of care given into how what they wear depicts their station within the story and their class and um, which community or group they might come from. And I really enjoyed that. Um, to go back to the the descriptiveness of it, I did want to point out um, that the only aspect where it gets a little overwrought for me is when it that merges with the YA-ness of the trope. So every eligible young man or, or, you know, love interest smells like grass and, you know, hearts quicken and hair swirls in the wind and, you know, those kinds of things um, perhaps after a while start feeling a little too teen tropey, but but they're minimal enough and, and I think the characters also earn them enough in that you genuinely like these characters. Uh, you can understand why someone might fall in love with a particular character, for instance. So I, I was willing to overlook it to a large extent. Hmm. I found that the language of the book, the, 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 the descriptions that were used sort of matured along the mm. book as we followed, as Singin herself matured. And I feel like that was a nice 
touch on showing how, yes, you know, this was how she was thinking of of what she was seeing as a young girl, but then that the tone slowly changes as she finds her way into becoming a young woman towards becoming a soldier and really discovering who she is and, you know, what she's doing all this for. That's a good point, because I did think that as the story progressed, there was a nice maturing of the central character. Yes. I, I think primarily her, because she is the person, Singin is a person who we accompany throughout the whole thing, right? She's the one whose eyes we see the story through and... And everyone else, um, all the, the thumping hearts and the, the jawlines are um, also seen through that lens. But the way in which she thinks about um, about family loyalties, mm-hmm. uh, the way in which she thinks about her torn and divided loyalties between the, the kingdom that she purports to serve um, and what her actual goals are, all these things. I think as the story got more complicated, the language did also... I wouldn't say simplify, but the language did also sharpen and mature. And I think that's a really good point. It was something I thought about, but didn't kind of crystallize until you said it. Mm, I, I actually didn't sort of directly realize that until just now. Um, I did think, though, that the story does, the story comes into itself very well um, because it, it, you know, you grow up with singing, right? And and even the things that happen within the story, it's very believable. It's not mm-hmm. a short book. Um, for a YA book, it is quite long. Um, I don't think I felt the length, but I was aware that this is um, a long read. Uh, but I think that the length of it then allows the book and the story to kind of take twists and turns to dwell on particular moments, to actually mark the different periods in Singin's life in a way that by the end, you feel like everything's really earned. Um, nothing, nothing feels superfluous. Nothing feels immature. Um, instead, you feel like you've been on a real journey with someone. We're talking today about Daughter of the Moon Goddess by Su Lin Tan, uh, which tells the story of Singin, the Daughter of the Moon Goddess, whom we've also been talking about quite a bit. Let us know, um, have you read the book? Do you plan to? And do you enjoy sort of YA fantasy? Is that a genre that you particularly like to read? You can let us know. WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Be firmly motivated. BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody. You are listening to By the Book with Lynn Sharmila and Suen, who's joining us today to discuss our monthly book club, which is Daughter of the Moon Goddess by Su Lin Tan. Now, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about the writing. I wanted to touch on the characters because mm-hmm. this is something you mentioned in passing earlier, Sharmila, the, the, the relatability of the characters. How do we feel about how they were all written? And I say all very purposefully because we spend a lot of time with Sing Yin, mm-hmm. but we also need to think about the other people who are there, um, her two love interests, um, Li Wei and Wenzhou. And then we've also got, I think, you know, just the other people who form the periphery of the the story. I would have liked a bit more development between Singin and the other characters because I found that a lot of the other minor characters beyond the two love interests were very superficial in a way. Like they pop up they pop up at the at they pop up at the right moment and then you have a bit of interaction between singing and the character and then sometimes there's indications that they have this history between them but you don't really get a more in-depth look at what their relation what her relationship is to each person you know whether it's someone who's in the palace whether it's with her mother or even with um someone in that's higher ranked in, with uh, that's higher ranked than her in the army, it always feels like you roughly get what their relationship is. And, and I don't mean in terms of 
length, right? I don't need necessarily more of her interaction, but just a bit more an, of an in-depth exploration. Yeah, I felt that too. I felt that particularly actually with um, her relationship with Chang, uh, her mother, mm-hmm. um, because you you kind of move away from that very quickly, and a lot of what you then feel or or tell or you're told you're supposed to feel is literally that you're told it. Um, it, it the book doesn't spend a lot of time with and and I get it in some ways because that's kind of the impetus for her to go on her adventure but um, I, I would have liked to see a little bit more of that um, I must say though that for what it's worth the central the central triangle of um, uh, Singyin Prince Liwei and and Wenzhe, um, I like those very much. All three of them were very well developed. You can you can see what YA trope they're meant to be, mm-hmm. but then the book kind of takes those tropes and complicates it a little bit and extends it a little bit in ways that I really didn't expect. In fact, there are some revelations or twists that I completely didn't see coming, and and it added a, a, a layer of richness to these characters that I really enjoyed. So I broadly agree with you both, although I wanted to um, ask, did you feel that it is enough of a reason to say that both Chang'e and Singyin are closed off from other people because they have secrets? Because of course, that's something mm. that the, the book kind of repeatedly says. It, it's quite explicit about it that she feels like, oh, I can't, I cannot speak, I must retreat, you know, and, and there is a lot of that. Um, it opens with her talking about how her mother loves her, but is distant. Like that, again, is explicitly said. Is that enough of a reason for us to therefore not get those other interactions with other characters? Not for me. Again, because I felt like I was being told something rather than shown it. Mm. Mm. I would agree with Sharmila to an extent. I think now that you mentioned it, Lynn, I, I think that makes sense in a bit why we don't get much because we are in her shoes, right? That That's why we don't get much of her interactions with the others because she herself is closed off. But yeah, I would still like to see more, especially in terms of her relationship with her mother, because that was the whole reason for her on going on this epic journey of trying to um, save her mother, essentially. And so I, I feel like I would have liked to get to know that relationship just a bit better, rather than having that first couple of chapters and then it's like, Okay, now scenes on her own. I totally get it. And I think that um, I bring it up only because it was something that I noticed at the time while reading it. And I was thinking, mm, I, I don't know how you necessarily get around this. If you have a character who is by her very nature closed off because she has a secret that could kill her and also the people she loves, what do you do with that, right? Like, how do you allow that character to go and interact with others? And I think in terms of development, perhaps it also has more to do with allowing her to then think thoughts about other people. People, which we don't necessarily get, I think. Mm. We just get those sort of um, slightly shorter interludes of, oh, she's really spunky and I love her, or she's really distant, but I love her anyway. And and it doesn't go beyond that. Um, and perhaps because it's also a book that centrals on a female character, perhaps it's, it's not a coincidence that you have three women who have read the book who are now saying, well, I wish that the female character had had more development with the other female characters and not mm-hmm. just the love interests. Oh, that I completely agree. I did feel that there was an opportunity because ultimately her, her female relationship, you know, relationships end up being quite an important uh, part of the story, but they're not nearly as well developed as the ones between her and uh, the men. Um, the other thing, and this isn't so much a lack of development, but perhaps just more of a, I would have liked this. Um, I wish there was more of the uh, Empress and the Emperor. Um, I mean, they kind of pop up in, in, in particular scenes for particular reasons, 
villains and they're obviously positioned as the the sort of the threat in the story. Um, particularly the Empress, I feel like I would have loved to see more of her. A lot of her stories, again, told to us through other characters and we don't necessarily see enough of her. And every time she appears, like I could imagine her like Gong Li, you know, like dressed up and, and looking really terrifyingly amazing. And I just wanted more of her. I, yeah, I think I, there's definitely parts where you're left wanting. And it, it. I think what was clever about this book was that when those other characters are not in the scene, I realised that I don't think of them as much until they show up. Then I'm like, huh, I want more of them. Mm. But then when the plot moves mm. on, you sort of, it, it engages you enough that you kind of forget that you wanted more of the other characters. Ah, so this brings me to my number one point um, that I've waited until now to say because I wanted to clearly establish that I really like this book because I did. I enjoyed it tremendously. Um, I felt every day, you know, as, as the day was ending and I knew I was going to head to my book, I looked forward to it. I looked forward to being back in this world and back in this adventure. However, and this is not a diss. I, I want to make it clear that this is actually not a criticism, um, but it is an observation that I simply cannot shake. This book feels like a video game. There is no other way for me to think about it or describe it once I noticed because it's levels after levels and you see her ascend through each level of difficulty, gaining a new prize and therefore gaining access to the next level, which then <laughs> sets her off on a new quest. It's, it's quest after quest after quest. I enjoyed it very much, but once I realized that the structure is literally a video game structure of, and you have the big boss, you even face the big boss right at the end. Um, you know, once I realized that structure, I, I kind of couldn't shake it, but I love it because I think it's appropriate for what is essentially a, a family story, but also a quest novel. Both of you guys have like mind blown me like individually in this in this discussion because yeah that's absolutely it um, because I was going to say that um, the thing I actually like the most about the book but also struck me as maybe being repetitive is the constant going on adventures and and you know one adventure is done and the next one is more difficult which feels very much like your Camelot and so on right uh, but yeah you're right it's absolutely a video game structure um, like leveling up at each side and and that's she, a really interesting observation she's even handed items which then yes, gain her she gets more yes. powers as she goes along exactly wow. and weapons she gains yes. powers weapons and access and allies as well yes <laughs> now i really want a video game of this it would be a cool video game. It would look really good. Um, and I think that that is part of my enjoyment of this book. I feel like, uh, and I said this at the start in terms of accessibility, I feel like it was written to be entertaining. And, and that is why even when I noticed, I, I mean, of course, it's affecting. There, there were moments that I felt like, oh, this this is quite, you know, this is kind of heart-rending. You feel a little bit of an ache. And I think that that's what you want from YA as well. But in terms of fantasy fiction, I mean, it created a world I wanted to be in. It created characters I like. And it was super entertaining. Um, even that idea of, well, maybe I want more of that character, but you know, the next plot thing has shown up and now I'm happy to be dragged along. It's a game. <laughs> Um, no, entertaining is absolutely right. I read this book while I was on holiday and it was a great holiday read. And I mean that in the best of ways, because it 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 just entertains you. There's something around every corner, whether it's how things look or how things sound or how, um, you know, it, it's that, you know, next shiny thing to keep you excited, uh, but in all of the best ways. Hmm. And I find that there are moments after it, each 
plot point or each level. Like, I'm wondering, like, okay, what, what else can you do next? But then there is something that comes next and it keeps you engaged. And now I can't get the video game thing out of my head. <laughs> I love that you said level because clearly now we are all on this. <laughs> On this exact level, I'm sorry. Um, I did save it for the end. I did not derail our our show at the start. But yeah, I just every time the thing would happen, I was like, "There it is, there it is." We're on level three. Um, Are you guys excited for the because it's a duology? Are you guys excited for the sequel? Yes. Um. Well, I want to say that I thought it actually the ending was quite nicely wrapped up. Like, yeah, there are loose ends, but it could also easily be one of those like happy for now endings that I would accept if it was a standalone book. But I am kind of, I'm looking forward to where this will go in a second book, but also slightly apprehensive as to, you know, what is going to happen next. Because things have Mm -hmm. also been sort of set out and then wrapped up quite nicely. That's true. Um, I'm excited for it mostly because I like the world. Um, I, I think that it's a super readable book. And so the second book I'm expecting to be just as fun. Um, I also feel as if there is a sureness about the writing. Uh, to loan a word that is used quite a bit in the book, it's deft. Um, so <laughs> I think that there is a sureness about the writing and uh, a sureness about the storytelling that makes me feel, uh, as somebody who's reading something that I, I knew was in a series, as if I was in safe hands, which I think is important because because sometimes when you're reading a book that you know is going to be a trilogy or a series of six, um, and there are these things in the writing where you're like, oh, okay, I'm not sure I can live with this for, for this many books. So I'm not sure I can live with this for, for this entire length of the story, or maybe it's not worth it. I didn't get that feeling with this book. I feel as if um, if she has a second story to tell, it's for good reason. I'm excited about the second book uh, because there are things that have been set out in this one that almost feel like there's a point of no return um, and things that are very important to the story. And so I'm just like, oh, how is that going to pan out? Like, how are certain characters going to progress? What are we going to see? And on just a very selfish note, I'm glad that it's just one more book. I don't know whether I have the wherewithal with every every great book for it to be a series or a trilogy. And knowing that there's one more book and that's going to be the complete story and it's coming out like in a couple of months. Um, That makes me very happy. We've been talking today about Daughter of the Moon Goddess, which is the first book of the Celestial Kingdom duology written by Sulin Tan. Um, we all really enjoyed it. We'd like to hear from you. Uh, have you read it? Do you plan to? And also, are you a fan of YA fantasy as a genre, as a reading experience? Let us know. You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. <music> us to footnotes where uh, today we are actually going to be talking about long read recommendations. This is something we do from time to time, mostly because there is an awful lot of good writing floating around in the world that doesn't necessarily reside in books. So we wanted to take the opportunity to kind of highlight a few that have caught our attention. I will forewarn everyone that my recommendations this week, for some odd reason, um, have all veered pretty much into the science, um, biology, evolution area. Uh, But I'll start with the softer stuff and work my way up to the hardcore, like crazy science. Um, So I'll start off with uh, an article that a lot of people have been sharing lately, and that's actually how I came across it. Um, It's in the Guardian Long Read section, and it's called How We Lost Our Sensory Connection with Food and How to 
restore it. Um, it's by B. Wilson, who calls herself a food educator. Um, and, and it's actually really nice read because it takes the notion of how we evolved to be able to connect and identify and consume food, i.e. opposable thumbs to be able to press on fruits and vegetables, um, a sense of smell and so on, but how the gradual industrialization of food and the um, processing of food and the supermarketing of food uh, took us further and further away from that and how we should get back to it because of the kind of primal and also physical connection that we have with food and why that's important. It's such a great read. It's not very long, to be honest. And um, yeah, I, I found it a really fulfilling read. What's that one again? It's called How We Lost Our Sensory Connection with Food and How to Restore It. Um, it's on The Guardian. Lovely. Uh, okay, so since we're talking about physical experiences, I'm going to talk about one that came out a little while ago. So if yours veer towards science, mine are all very uh, soft slash sociological or psychological. Uh, but this first one got a lot of attention when it first came out and with good reason, I think. It is in the New York Times magazine and it's called The Joys and Challenges of Sex After 70 and it was written by Maggie Jones. So um, it in case, I mean, I don't think I need to explain much more about the article. It is very much in the title. That's exactly what it's about. But uh, what she does is that it is a very, it is a very tender um, and very sensitive look at couples after 70 um, and their efforts towards maintaining or reviving or finding new forms of intimacy after 70. And it, it talks about people who... Um, for, and it runs the gamut of people who are currently single. It runs the gamut of uh, married couples who have not always had uh, the most physical enjoyment of one another, finding that later in life and what that looks like. Um, it's got, I, I don't know, it's just all different forms. And I think that what I like so much about it is that it is, like I said earlier, tender primarily. That was the thing I thought about. But it was also so open and normalizes something that I think, especially here in our part of the world, we just choose not to think about much to the disservice of everyone, which is also something that the article argues against, right? This idea that if you, if we were all a little bit more open-minded to thinking about talking about these things and changing the ways in which we think about something like physical intimacy and the pursuit of it, um, I don't know, I just feel like we'd all be a lot happier. And I really loved it. It, it made me... Um, you know, it, it does that best thing. It made me happy. Uh, it also made me a little bit melancholy, but all in a good way. So yeah, again, that's called The Joys and Challenges of Sex After 70. And that's by Maggie Jones. That sounds like the exact example of what I love about long reads, um, which is articles that you didn't necessarily know you were looking for about things that you didn't necessarily think you were interested in until you stumble across them and then they become the most fascinating thing ever. The next article that I'm going to recommend is 100% that. Um, and I remember distinctly that I came across it under my suggested reads, I think. And it's called Becoming a Centaur. And it's essentially about the human-horse relationship over time and how um, it makes a case. And, and, and with, with actual science to back this up, it actually makes a case that both humans and horses have actually evolved to form what they call a neurobiological link uh, because of the way in which riding a horse and, and the sort of minute ways in which a rider's body language and, and touches direct 
affects the horse and vice versa. Um, again, you know, one of those things I never thought about, um, but I got so deeply fascinated reading it. I'm also very aware that the last time we recommended anything, I recommended an article on dogs. Yes, so, I was going to say, you're, you're, you're in a loop. <laughs> I know, I've come full circle. Um, but it also, I think, fascinated me because inherently I like science when it's applied to a very human kind of story. And in this, it explores all the different ways in which horses and, and humans have lived together and evolved together. It looks at both things like farming and hunting, but also equestrian uh, equestrian sports. And I don't know, there's just something so um, almost magical about reading this. And, and, you know, that title, Becoming a Centaur, kind of uh, depicts the tone in which the article is written, a sort of marveling at the possibilities of nature and evolution. Um, I thought it was a very interesting read. I mean, at the very least, it appeals to our Black Beauty loving hearts, right? Absolutely. Um, that's yes. what I was thinking about, about how that was really my first exposure to the idea of uh, that relationship that can form between a person and a horse. So, um, Becoming a Centaur, is, is that right? That's a very catchy title. Uh, Becoming where, a Centaur. Where is it available? Aeon, Aeon.co. Nice. Um, okay, my next piece is I'm, I'm steadily... Okay, no. I'm not steadily heading towards a more serious thing. I'm going to peak seriousness now. Uh, I'll just say that. And it is actually on BuzzFeed News. Um, and the, the title of the article is Eric Schneiderman Says He's Changed. Is That Enough? Now, um, I don't think Eric Schneiderman is necessarily a name that we're so familiar with here, but he was the former Attorney General of New York. And he was one of the men who was uh, accused of a number of things at the height of Me Too. It was published on February 9th this year. So I think that gives you some sense of how much time has passed since his kind of public outing of this sort of behaviour. Uh, it's a conversation between him as well as a friend of his, Anna Graham Hunter, who was actually on the other side of the Me Too equation. She was one of the women who um, who came out in public and spoke about her experiences with Dustin Hoffman, sexually harassing her. And so what it is actually is it's a very complicated story, but it's about the way in which two people on opposite ends of the Me Too experience, who are friends, um, try to talk out the various things involved in that in terms of what justice could look like, um, in terms of feeling as if no, but it's not fair. I need to tell my story. The dynamics between men and women as they play out in terms of powerful men and um, powerful men and the women who are trying to talk about the effects that their actions had on their lives. And it's just really interesting because I think that one of the things that has always emerged about movements like Me Too has been, okay, what now? So where, where does this go? Does it go to only a court? Is it going to go to policymaking? Where does this conversation go? And I think, you know, what this is, is two people trying to reckon with it and um, arguing with one another, expressing hurt. It's just really fascinating as a complicating in some ways of what happens after an accusation. I've actually seen that article and I, I earmarked it to read. Um, so I'm really glad that it's such, it sounds, I don't know, is it a difficult read? Because that's what kept me from not reading it just yet. It's not a difficult read, but it can be frustrating, I think, depending on, um, depending on where you are. But it, it is, what's interesting about it in some ways, and the article acknowledges acknowledges it as well, is that Eric Schneiderman is a trained lawyer. I mean, he was the Attorney General. And so because of that, he has um, he gets into what they themselves call the criminal defense loop. And so his friend, Anna Graham Hunter, actually says as part of the article that 
the person that she speaks to after he speaks to his therapist and the person that she speaks to after he speaks to his lawyers, completely different person. And and I think it is that push and pull that really kind of motivates the article. It's great. Um, so yeah, it's on BuzzFeed. It's called Eric Schneiderman Says He's Changed. Is That Enough? And it's written by Katie J.M. Baker. Okay. I'm going to go full crazy science now. Um, This one's from Wired. And the title of the article is, of course, we're living in a simulation. And I really really want to read the subhead because it tells you exactly what you're going to get from the article. The subhead is, the only people who absolutely disagree are well scientists. They need to get over themselves and join the fun. And that's that's really the tone of this. And when I went into this, I actually expected a much more serious article about, oh, the philosophy, the, the physics behind are we in a simulation? But instead, what it ends up being is the writer, Jason Cahey, I think his name is pronounced, um, who, who generally writes about sci-fi as well as tech, um, basically taking the largely crackpot theories of us living in a simulation, but extending that to the realm of logic and possibility and taking scientific theories and philosophy and trying to give it credence while at the same time also being very tongue-in-cheek. It's it's a tone that I cannot capture in description. You have to read it, but it's so well-written. Um, and on top of all of these things, it's also a semi-book review of um, a book by David Chalmers, who's a techno-philosopher. And his book makes a case for simulated realities and and the philosophy behind them. So it's it's a very clever, interesting, nerdy article on this notion of are we living in a simulation and doesn't offer very many easy answers, but it's such a fun, interesting read. I mean, that sounds delightful. Um, So like I've said earlier, we've gone pretty, on the one hand, hard science, on the other hand, kind of social mores. And so I'm just going to keep going on that front and close off with a recommendation actually of a newsletter. Um, So I think I'm not sure that many of us here subscribe to newsletters, although in uh, places like the US and the UK, I think they've very much become the norm for independent writers to support themselves, whether via Substack or Patreon or just all these different ways and forms. Um, but one writer whom I subscribe to and really enjoy is, I'm going to struggle with this. Her name is Haley, and her surname is, I want to say Naaman or Naman. Um, it's N-A-H-M-A-N. I apologize. So um, it's Haley Naaman, I'm going to say. And the name of of the newsletter is Maybe Baby. Uh, you can find her at hayleynayman.substack.com uh, if you wanted to check out the, the essays that she's written to see if any of them kind of catches your fancy. But I, what I like about her is that she examines the emotions of modern living. And I know that that sounds very odd, but what I mean is it comes with... Um, micro emotions, just little things, little observations about living online or about being about consuming ideas in a big way, consuming ideas in a big way through a very small personal lens. I don't know how else to describe it, except that it runs the gamut of relationship advice, internet observations, uh, observations about beauty and femininity or, you know, gender, all these different things packed into it. I wanted to bring up two in particular, or rather one. I'll just go with one, which is number 93. Um, It was published on March 20th, and it's called Five New Terms That I Made Up. And it's essentially terms that uh, apply to, you know, experiences that we are having right now. So one example was elastic mood. Um, And the definition for that is when a mood is so overwhelming that you mistake the intensity of 
of it for the longevity of it. In other words, <laughs> it's that feeling of, you know what, I've just been having a really hard month when in fact, it's been a hard couple of days, sure, but it's not been a month, you know. And so it's those kinds of minute but really clever observations that I enjoy. So yeah, it's called Maybe Baby. That's the newsletter. I love the idea of newsletters. I have to say, I don't subscribe to a whole lot of them. And the ones that I do, um, it often happens by accident. And it tends to be because I, I like the person behind it. Mm. Uh, or it's someone I know and I have some interest in in reading their regular writings. But I think they're such a great way of um, getting these like pieces of writing that you know you'll enjoy delivered to your inbox and um, I don't know I think that's something I might want to perhaps engage in a little bit more actively as we come out of the pandemic and perhaps have less time to read. So um, that's us recommending all in all six long reads quite a lot actually of ground covered. Let us know do you enjoy reading long pieces and do you have any recommendations you'd like to share? You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899 tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us and buy the book at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.